Hello, everyone, and welcome to What Would the Smart Party Do, the UK's premier RPG podcast. I'm Gaz, and with me as usual is my good friend Baz. How's it going, Baz? It's going really well, mate. Here I am again. I'm here, and as usual, with me is my good friend Matt. Hello, Matt. How's it going? Uh, very good. Thank you very much for having me, and it's been a while. Yes, it it's been a while, hasn't it? The triumvirate. It hasn't been that long since we've gamed, but it's been that long since we've chatted about gaming in anything remotely revolving a microphone. There's reasons for that. Yeah, but now the junction's expired, we can once again record. So thanks to Matt from Seaforge for rejoining us once more. If only there was something to talk about in RPG circles. It's been quiet, hasn't it? I don't think there's been any drama at all. Yeah. Apart from maybe about what's a Hasbro D&D OGL OMG. OGL, OMG. <laughs> so, WTF OGL, what's he? <laughs> I like that I mentioned OGL and there's like the plunk of a bottle of whiskey opening then. <laughs> I'm like, I, I've come prepared for this conversation. <laughs> <laughs> that bottle looks like it's full of the tears of the third party publishing community. <laughs> <laughs> What is this? What is this topic on which we're about to discuss? So, for those of you who perhaps don't know or, or don't uh, attend social media or don't care, uh, I should probably give some kind of baseline. So, about twenty years ago, or something around the time of the release of third edition DD, there was an open gaming license that Wizards went for, uh, which uh, made available to people gaming, open gaming content, which is stuff that's in the SRD, the System Reference Document. Uh, and in layman's terms, it meant you could use the rules and a lot of stuff from D&D and make your own game of it and go and publish stuff. And you could build on top of it and you'd have that license uh, perpetually and you could make your own games. And lots of people did that. And there's been, since then, a new SRD for 5th edition, for example. And there's all things around Creative Commons licenses and all kinds of different shenanigans, which I will let you go and look at the Legal Legal YouTube channel and various others to look for, for various definitions of trademarks and what you can and can't include in these things, all the rest of it. But drama has recently arrived because, well, I think it started off at a Hasbro investors meeting when someone said players are under-monetized in our hobby and we should get more money out of them. And uh, not long after that emerged a purported draft of a new OGL, which is a lot less uh, open than the previous one. Uh, it's more restrictive. Uh, you had to give Wizards more of you money and tell them what you made, and even going back into previous sales, and they could own your stuff. And there's been a big uh, shitstorm, for want of a better phrase, around what you can or can't do, what they were doing. Uh, is it our hobby? Is it their hobby? And all the rest of it. I think that gives like a... a a decent uh, starting point for a discussion, unless either of you guys want to kind of embellish further. I think a lot of detail come out in the conversation, won't it? But um, yes. I think you've got, you've got the, I think you've got the gist of it. But I also think there's a certain degree of that's the common interpretation of mm. the situation. And I think, I think a lot of the um, interesting conversation to have a, on this topic is going to largely um, fall around the delta between reality. Mm -hmm. and perceived reality and we both well we all know that they are both equally viable but not necessarily always the same thing yes quite sorry baz i cut across you a little bit there it's not a problem mate no problem the only thing that i would add to that would be that 
there's also a distinction between the hobby and the industry. Uh, obviously, industry is probably a silly word to use for role-playing games anyway, but if there is an industry, it's Wizards of the Coast stroke Hasbro. So there's what's good for business, what's good for your game that you play around your kitchen table or over virtual tabletop, and they can sometimes be miles apart. Um, and I think that sometimes the beefs that get raised in regard to one don't necessarily translate across to the other. Yes, but very true, Baz. Yeah, so for, for the sake of protecting our own asses, any legal advice or opinions you hear here, uh, don't take them to the bank. Uh, if you are going to take whatever action you want or continue to use an LGL, not use it, see wizards, whatever you want to do, go and take your own independent legal advice. That's just, I mean, I assume people will anyway, but that's my own disclaimer to make sure that nobody comes back on us. A lot of the storm in the teacup, uh, I'll let you guys uh, give me your opinion as well, seems to have come from third-party publishers. So I don't think necessarily there's a massive Rory that I've seen on Reddit, for example, or other places, that D&D players, I don't know, perhaps even recognise there's such a thing as an LGL or care that much. I mean, what would you say as a, an industry expert? Mm. Oh, what, what's your kind of flavour of people who are complaining about this? I think it's interesting because I've heard a couple of anecdotes and, and sort of stories that that are, are slightly surprising. One of the guys that both Baz and I uh, game with, he's he's got a, a Tuesday group, and they're they're an interesting group because they're predominantly war gamers or like mini mini gamers who mm-hmm. kind of really got into D anD D, you know, over the last kind of couple of years. Um, but they they play in a really kind of by the book kind of way. You know, they they count arrows, they they calculate their encumbrance, they do everything legit, and um, you know, more power to them if they if if that floats their boat. Um, but they are they got into D and D through Critical Role. Um, they play it in a very very structured and specific way. And just the other week, um, they were they were having a conversation about well, what other games are there out there for us to try now that now that you know now that we don't play D and D anymore, and and you think. That's kind of interesting because you've got no skin in the game. You've got you've got the books. You've got everything that you need to kind of play for the rest of your lives. So why 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 are you kind of jumping? I mean, Critical Role has certainly come out with a fairly neutral position mm-hmm. when they put an announcement out. So that that kind of implies that there's there's an ongoing relationship that they they still have with with Wizards and and WizKids. Um, that I think they need to be careful about what they're saying. So. I don't anticipate critical role suddenly lane swap into their own system. Although, if they're not work, if Darrington Press isn't working on their own system, then I would be astonished. So I expect that to kind of happen in the next uh, in the next little bit. So I think probably one one thing to mention there is that one of the um, conspiracy theories or or conjectures that goes around. So I'm saying conspiracy, not like. Part of the problem is that with uh, the new OGL that has released was that it was presented as coming from insiders and then various other things on top of that that have been said or about intent or other words and pieces have all come from apparently inside wizards, uh, insiders and there's no way of telling or fact-checking bits and pieces as we go about what is actually genuine and what's, you know, someone's made up. But as far as critical role goes, there, there is a sort of like talk that um, they're presented with OGL 1.1 as a lot of people were, and they may have signed something. So there's like a there's probably more they've got to do around due diligence, whether or not they got presented with a final document to sign and whether they did sign it. There's probably like they've got to be careful, aren't they? Because 
they're big in terms of streamers and gaming, but in terms of um, Hasbro or companies, they are very small. It's you know thirty people that need to yeah still make a living, so they've got to be careful in what they say. But I've heard from more than one publisher uh, in, in the industry, as Baz mentions, that's different than the hobby, but that they were presented with this one point one document, uh, not as a draft, but as something they should sign. I I, I don't know. I mean. Knowing, knowing Matt and, and Travis, and tra- Travis is the one who looks after the business side of things, I find it really hard to believe that they would sign up to a 25% royalty, you know, which right. is essentially yeah. what that original first draft was. I, I think it's purely the fact that they have an ongoing relationship with with, with Watsy and have done for, for a few years now, you know, since Steamforge did the... Um, the critical role miniature range and and then that contract ended and they then you know started working with WizKids and 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 with D officially i suspect that that's that's the extent of the relationship i don't i would be amazed if if they had signed up to to that ogl as like an early adopter i don't i don't see why why they would well why mm. would it be in their interest to do that yeah Certainly not with, the, with the, some of the like the really egregious terms in there that I think the community kind of really quickly picked up on and and, and quite rightly sent up some flares of, of of warning. You know, we need to we do need to look at this. If this is what's coming out, then this is going to cause us problems. It feels very it feels very um, similar to to what happened towards the end of three point five and the transition into four. But with a with a slightly different skin on it, which is which is kind of fascinating that that sort of history feels a little bit like it's repeating itself. Well, it certainly does. I mean, the transition into fourth edition gave birth to Pathfinder, essentially. Um, it was certainly a big part of that, and Pathfinder is is once again entering stage left after probably a couple of years where they thought. Crikey, Riley, 5E's doing quite well. Who thought they would get a stage of comeback after 4th edition? And now, um, Paizo arriving on their white charger, their paladin steed, come to save us all, <laughs> which is which is ironic. I mean, we're talking about corporations here, aren't we? If there, if there is such a thing as corporations in role-playing sense, then Wizards of the Coast, yes, as a subsidiary of Hasbro. Paizo, maybe, probably, maybe. That's about it, really. So, you know, Paizo were like, um, kind of like the Labour Party these days. You know, got no real power, but everyone thinks they're great because they're not Watsy. <laughs> that seems to be they're waiting for a general election and maybe they've just been a bit opportunistic, maybe. I don't know. But I mean, I mean look, at the, at the end of the day, a business should be opportunistic. It means yes. that they keep putting on the polls. If they see an opportunity, they should, I think, move decisively. I think if Paizo can take a larger market share out of this, then then fair play to them. You know, Pathfinder's not my first choice of system, um, but I know an awful lot of people who do like it and do love it, and the production values are, are, are fantastic. So, you know, as a as a as a landing spot for people who want to jump jump the good ship 5e and 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 find a, a safe port. I mean unfortunately I think that the difference between 5e and Pathfinder on the face of it, it seems slight, but on when you when you actually play three six months into a game, I think you're going to feel that there's a there's a much bigger difference. So I suspect there'll be an awful lot of people who jump into Pathfinder, really really enjoy themselves because they're playing something new and exciting, and it's all fresh again. And we all know that feeling when you play a new game. 
and then about three months into it, you kind of go, hmm, and, and and some of the sharper edges will start annoying you. But, you know, maybe they won't. Who knows? Yeah, I, I think the other thing to mention is that, you know, there's a, there's a narrative that, you know, wizards are evil corporate greed lords and want to, you know, just suck the hobby drivers money. It's our hobby and not theirs kind of thing. But like Pizard, uh, not so long ago, all the, the staff like unionizing because they've been treated so poorly. And if you switch into Pathfinders like a moral sort of like, because you don't want to vote for the baddies, then you, you're probably not really, uh, you don't looked as deep into the ethical consequences of what you're doing <laughs> as perhaps you might want to. <laughs> Let me put it that way. Yeah, especially when um, the initiative, uh, mostly uh, from Paizo, about the ORC, there's a lot of acronyms in tonight's show, open something content, their version of a, a, a genuinely open license that anyone can use, they've got 1,500 publishers who have pledged to support it. And I, I put in air quotes around pledged because already on Twitter today, there's people coming out saying, hang on a minute, I just signed up to be emailed about updates. That's not quite the same as me pledging my support to you. And <laughs> when you look down the list of the publishers, there's some publishers in there who, within very recent memory, have been pretty much deplatformed because of their odious views on things. So, mm. you know, there's taking sides, gamers taking sides in this, let alone little publishers, and they're all little publishers, just seems to be a little bit beside the point. Now, this is where I wanted to get to with the business and the gaming thing. There's been a perception recently that the OGL, the Open Game License, is the thing that made D&D. And that's why people play D&D. And I don't buy it. I don't no. buy that at all. I think the OGL made it very possible for people to make a living out of D&D. Um, mm -hmm. Quite a big living. In some cases, it started careers, corporations, businesses. There are plenty of people who make their money off of that. But I think the people who play D&D, &D, they don't go there for the open game license. That's not why they're playing D&D. &D. They're playing D&D &D because it's popular. That's the main draw. It's the game that everybody else plays. So the idea of like, now I'm going to be able to buy fewer books from other people who don't work at the company who make my game. Therefore, I'm going to stick it to the man by playing Pathfinder, which is built off of D&D. &D. That doesn't hurt them at all. It never, because that, that path has always been possible. <laughs> they could have found that path. It's, um, I just, I don't get the conflation of me as a D&D &D player, and no one plays more D&D than I do with this particular group. Maybe Matt does. It just doesn't affect me in the slightest. And I've published a game with an OGL in the front of it. It doesn't matter. Now, it doesn't mean, that doesn't mean that what they've done is right or that what they've done is, um, is not worth criticizing or talking about or anything else like that. But very, very quickly, the conversation always goes into, yeah, but you know, Pathfinder's still got a lot of feats and you still have to plan out your levels. That's got just, that's so far removed from what the OGL stuff is all about that I can't, I can't read some of the, the nonsense that people are trotting out as, as their weapons in the war against a license, which six months ago, they, they, they could not have told you what was in it. <laughs> uh, uh, the most the most vocal people I've seen, and uh, I, I might get some uh, <laughs> I might get some feedback on this, but I, I get the feeling for the rest of this podcast we might all get some feedback. But the, the, the loudest voices I've seen are people who publish third party stuff at the minute. Yeah, for D and D, and they're talking about our hobby and we built it, and they can't take it back. And and part of me thinks like 
What do you mean, we? Who's the we in We Built This? Do you mean we as in you put something on DMs Guild or you produced your own little Kickstarter or whatever? Or do you mean the millions of people who just play around the kitchen table? Because that's where the real hobby is. And no one's taking that away from us by changing the OGL or anything else. Like the we, the people who built the hobby, are people who play DD and other tabletop role playing games. And, and as you said, Baz, like that's down to DD being the biggest buy out there. And lots of people recognize that brand. And people like Critical Role, for example, who have driven loads of people into playing DD and the hobby. Uh, and not someone who's written, you know, 12 magical portions for centaurs or all the other stuff you see flooded on the market out there. You know what I mean? But so that the main the main voices, sorry, I wish I wanted to say was just like it seems to be people who now can't make or perceive that they're not going to be able to make the same money or that they've built a career or livelihood or given up the day job to do this, and now that's threatened rather than anything about D and D itself or whatever. Mm-hmm. And they don't seem to recognise that the reason they've managed to make a living out of this is working off the D and D brand, which they didn't in and of themselves necessarily build and have contributed to. But if they'd have been doing the same thing for, I don't know, Traveller, they wouldn't have had the same success. So that there's a, there seems a little bit of they were happy to succeed off the back of someone else's IP and brand. And now that's changing the amount of contribute to it, that it feels a bit sour grapes. And they feel like they're old. They should be able to make free money off someone else's brand, basically. And if there's any any talk of them having to contribute, I think that's part of, um, or they're the loudest voices I see anyway. There's all kinds of people complaining about what's happening at the minute, but I, f- I find myself in a unusual and strange position, uh, which is coming at this from a slightly different angle, one of compassion. So the the that's not like you at all, Matt. No, I know it's it's bizarre, but I, I hear what you're saying, but I, I and I don't know if it's sour grapes. I wonder if it's people who are just genuinely worried about what their future is now. Yeah, could be. And, yeah. and up until this point, their future was largely they'd hitched their creative talents to the biggest wagon on the block and they were carving out. And God knows it's not easy, as we all know, uh, to make, um, you know, a lot of money from this. So this is very much something that you tend to do for love. But there are people who are lucky enough to have broken free of the of the pull of gravity and, and you know, given up their day jobs, as you say, and and are, and are doing something that they absolutely love with their life and creating content and now their future is very uncertain so i wonder i don't i don't know if it's sour grapes i think it's fear of the abyss which i don't know if that's actually worse in many ways but yeah so so my wording might have been flipping there uh, and i agree with what you're saying but i think it's the um why i kind of came at it from that angle is the kind of that what i also see normally attached to what they say is they're doing it to us and it's our hobby. Don't let them take it away from yeah. us. And that that sort of angle is like, well, it's not no they're not taking anything off you. The you know, the DD community still exists. People will still carry on playing it or not. Well, I, I believe that the the, the, the the trouble is, you know, as with all contracts, the you know, the devil is in the detail. And I think one of the things that the the Hasbro lawyers keep trying to get in is is these kind of really sort of shady clauses that seem to be plausibly okay on the face of it but in the wrong hands could could be really egregious and i think one of the ones if i if i you know as a third party content creator that that does make me nervous is anything where it talks about um wizards being able to take not uh, originally they were able to take content that i had made and and Mm. just acquire ownership of it they've they've walked back from that however 
um, they're able to directly plagiarize work that people have done. They just can just copy it, and there's mm-hmm. no recourse on that. So, if your if your job is to come up, you know, uh, with fantastic subclasses that people love, you know, hugely popular segment in in like the five E development space, and and wizards go, oh yeah, that that kind of like dragon knight subclass seems pretty good. Yeah, we're just going to chuck down the book. No credit, no royalty, no recognition of someone's you know intellectual property really that they've built into that albeit piggybacking off of someone else's ip it's a it's a it's a tangled mess and i think it's 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 a hard one i know baz and i sort of chatted about this on um on wednesday when we we got together to play some board games and it, there's a degree of you know the anxiety and the angst being unreasonable this is their ip this is mm. their property to do with what they want and to monetize how they want and to yeah. or they can chuck it in a box like 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 earth dawn they can chuck it in a box and forget about it and never do another thing with it again right it's up to them it's they yes. own it. no one else owns it um however there is a large community there who who quite rightly feels a sense of ownership but in a legal sense it doesn't mean anything it means nothing it's, yeah from coming from a like a hard nose corporate point yeah i've got like People experiencing QA and all kinds of things. And the, the stuff there were like, if you, let's say you were a farmer and you sign up with uh, Tesco's, for example, uh, and they'll say like, yeah, we, we probably want like a million round lettuces off you, but we're only going to take 100,000 at first and we'll call them down in 10,000 chunks and then not want them anymore. And, you know, for a couple of years, you sell a million lettuces each. And then the next year they go, do you know what? We want um, remain lettuce. Now we don't want round ones. And you go, but I've got a field of a million lettuce. They go, okay, well, you know, sell someone else. Mm. And you can't. And you you fucked basically, but for the years when they did want your lettuce, you've made a lot of money. So there's there's a bit of I don't want to say it's naivety, but like that that's something I've seen like with you know M and S, all kinds of big suppliers. Like, like if you call D and D like the big big supplier in in the RPG markets, if you sign up to them their corporate ways, you're going to make a lot of money potentially and uh, or have success. But ultimately, at some point, they might turn around and go, well, we're changing the rules now. And you've, you've kind of got to deal with it, and that comes with the territory. And that might just be something that people haven't, you know, didn't even think would be a thing. I think people generally didn't think about it. And those that did probably felt quite secure that the, that the, the, the size of the community and the activity of the community and the benefit that it had to 5e surely that outweighs any kind of like short-termism about trying to you know monetize your community a bit more or lev- you know leverage you you know your, your your consumer base a little bit more so i think it came as a bit of a shock bit of a surprise to yes, be honest with yeah. you and i'll tell you yeah, what it reminds me of do you remember when they at the end of warhammer um ninth edition warhammer fantasy and they blew the old world up mm-hmm. and and then they came out with the with the new thing the age of sigma stuff it's what it feels like to me and I think Games Workshop went through a a similar thought process where they thought, well, do you know what? We are going to attrition a bunch of players out of this, but we're not currently monetizing our player base. And at the time, Warhammer Fantasy had a huge audience, highly engaged, um, pretty much owned everything that they'd ever made, wasn't really buying anything more from the from the parent company because they had everything they needed. And Games Workshop, and that, but but demanding new editions and content to come out for it all the time. And Games Workshop kind of sort of said, you know, well, we're not actually getting anything out of this, you know. Um, 
and then there was the whole kind of um, legal side of it that, that I think Games Workshop used as a little bit of a smokescreen, which was, oh, we need to tidy up the legal name so we can actually protect our IP because, you know, an orc is 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 a commonly accepted fantasy phrase, so we'll call, call ours Uruks or whatever the heck they call them. But I think fundamentally it came down to the fact that people who played Warhammer generally had all the armies that they needed and, and just got the new edition and played with that and never gave GW, a, you know, a significant penny at all. And I feel like... Maybe, maybe you know, Hasbro were looking at Wizards books and thinking, what is the average spend per user? What is the lifetime spend per user? And realizing that the lifetime spend is probably equal to the to the twelve month spend, i.e., your PHB, your, your DMG, and your Monster Manual, and maybe one one of their books a year. Well, there's definitely headroom for them to kind of go after, and maybe they do need to blow the world up. Maybe they do need to attrition some of their their player base out to give themselves a little bit more control over their product in order to you know look to grow their business you know yeah it's it's fascinating when you kind of look and see sort of parallels with with what other companies have done and and what wizards themselves have done you know in in very recent recent memory but right i'll I'll come back to the games workshop thing because i think that's a really really good point mate but i think a better games workshop example might be actually a bit earlier in their history but anyway i'll come back to that um i was going to hit a couple of points that guys mentioned as well I think if you if you hitch your wagon to somebody else's business, you can benefit massively from that business, but you have to swings and roundabouts it. That's really mixed up all the metaphors there, hasn't it? But you know yeah. what I mean. It's a short way of saying what I said. <laughs> yeah, exactly. If you're in the business of making uh, cases for iPhones, I'm sure you do very, very well for the year that that iPhone is that shape. And then the next year when Apple decides to release it and it's got a different camera, then all of a sudden it's like, oh, my goodness me, we're going to, that's the end of my livelihood with that particular case. But of course, those people just make new ones, don't they? And they just work on it that way. So there's an element of that. The difference is, the difference is with the OGL is the word irrevocable. And that OGL license was supposed to be a license that could never be changed and could never be overwritten. There's no take backs. So on that basis, for 22 years, companies like Green Ronin, Cobalt Press, um, Paizo, and people who make dice. All of those guys have been making their business decisions based on something much firmer than just, you know, this is a license and it can come and go. They, they have been doing it on that. So for them, this must stick in the craw that all of a sudden Hasbro lawyers are talking about the ability to deauthorize something that they've made very big investments based upon as a surety. Um, mm-hmm. And especially for those very early adopters of three third edition era who were in the room with Ryan Dancy when it was happening, and they know the intent more than they know the words. So there's still some there's some jiggery pokery going on, and I'm going to be quick on this one. Looking at it from Wizards' perspective, they're working on a new edition. No one's talking about one D and D anymore, are they? But they're working on a new edition. They had to do this to an extent, or something like this. Because if they do a sixth edition of D&D and it gets the same kind of splintering of the fan base that fourth edition did, then currently someone can rewrite fifth edition and launch it, which is what mm. Paizo did with Pathfinder. They don't want to oh, do yeah. that. Why would they do that again? So they have to close up some of the loopholes, loopholes that they've made, but they're going to take a risk with everything that they do. And... And I think they've been a bit disingenuous, but there is always the possibility of, of nonsense like new TSR and 
all of that nonsense from Ernie Gygax, which is being done under the auspices of the OGL. It's kind of gotten out of their hands. And to be fair to Wizards of the Coast, they're just gamers, largely. But Hasbro have got proper lawyers who go, seriously, this thing is mainstream, but we're letting we're letting extremist people publish our brand stuff. We're giving away loads of our revenue to people. We're being very, very nice in letting them use bugbears. We've got a DMs guild, yeah, but we get a very small percentage of that. And to Matt's point, they could always take your content if you publish on DMs guild because it's all open content. So I'm kind of not surprised that Hasbro are going this way, but I'm not sure they've done it the right way. But I don't know what the right way would have been to prevent another big split that basically makes a lot of money for other people. But I think you're onto something there because when you say I don't know what the right what the right way could have been, this this is the right way, you know, <laughs> for them legally. Yeah. This yeah. is what their their legal team are saying. And if we are sitting here thinking that Hasbro don't have access to some pretty decent lawyers, yeah, they know what they're doing. They know what they've got to do. And and the the success of D and D, the growth of it as a as a product and a brand and the awareness across all demographics now you know you've got a i don't know what the what the budget is but looking at the the trailer for the D movie that looks mm. like a 50 to 100 million pound budget you know mm. or million dollar um so you're talking tens of millions of pounds worth of investment into that you're talking about a live action tv show you know, Vox Machina have just got like season two onto Amazon Prime. So you can bet your bottom dollar that there's people out there talking to, you know, Netflix about doing an animated show of some sort, you know, starting to try and really merchant like merchandise and 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 leverage the, you know, and squeeze the brand, make make the most out of the brand while it's really hot. Well, you're talking like an awful lot of money, like a lot, a lot of money. So so I think they need to be quite clean and quite ruthless. This is why I think they are holding on to that strong red line that, that we know the community doesn't want to go near, but I think they have to jettison the old OGL in order to be able to have conversations with Amazon and with Netflix, because I don't know, you guys probably know this, but it's worth sort of like just sort of vocalizing in case people listening aren't aware that, you know, you could have a, an IP. So let's say like Steamforge has got an IP God tier, right? If we get a, if we have a chat with, um, with Amazon and they want to do a TV series about it, they want the rights to all the merchandise, not just the TV show. They want the rights to to the plushies and the mugs and the video game and the mobile phone apps. They want everything because for them, what they put onto their their streaming platform is only a, it's like the tip of the iceberg in terms of the monetization. It's the it's the protection of the rest of it. That's where they make the bulk of their cash. You know, is from from the actual merchandise of the show. Stranger Things didn't make money because, like, through Netflix subscriptions, it made it through <laughs> the billion different bits of plastic tack that you could have bought yeah. had Stranger Things written on it, right? That's where they make their money. And that's, you know, and if, if and if we think, I can't believe there's anyone on the planet naive enough to think that D&D isn't a bigger brand than Stranger Things. And look at how ubiquitous that was in terms of, like, the merchandising and, and, and what they did with the licensing for that particular product. This is what they've got to do. They, they, this is this is them growing up with a brand that suddenly catapulted into like big boy stakes. All right, it's not up there with Marvel and Star Wars and and you know, but it's certainly not far off punching weight with with Wheel of Time and you know and and um, you know um, Rings of Power and and that kind of thing. And we know what kind of money Amazon threw at Rings of Power. You know, terrifying amounts of money. 
Mm. So yeah, I, I I genuinely think that that when you stop and go, well, how else could they have done it? And you think about it from the perspective of hundreds of millions of dollars at risk. I don't know if there's another way that they could have approached it. Mm. Yes, it absolutely sucks for for those people at the other end of the spectrum who are generating a a single or a small company's worth of revenue out of this and and getting by on that yeah it 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 absolutely sucks from their perspective it's it's that is dwarfed by by the opportunity space that they have and this is why they're going after it i think yeah i think there's um from a player point of view as well i think there's part of it is um we're old enough that we've, we've produced content for games or been happy like if something has got published in a magazine or a letter or whatever We'd be like quite. We'd be ecstatic. We'd be happy, you know. Like Baza said before, he's delighted with the fact that someone might play King of Dungeons, which he produced. Like he's more happy about that than the dollar value of any particular sale or anything. So the part of the thing I struggle with when I see all the, um, you know, rending of hair and gnashing of teeth and all this kind of stuff is that as old school gamers, I think we're used to like producing stuff anyway and wanting it to be out there and shared. So the the couple of things I've done on DM's Guild, for example, like they take half of that. And if they wanted to republish it, well, I'd be quite pleased that they republished my stuff. I, I doubt they'd ever would, but like that's a, a kind of angle I'm coming at from. You know, I'm yeah. I'm used to sharing of the kudos and being an open content thing is is part of it for me. And, and the fact that I get some money is is quite nice. And all my stuff that I've got on there for the free league workshop and everything, you know, the companies take half of it. But that that's what I'm signing up to, you know. And part of the the change of the LGL license and stuff, because well, it's now to version 1.2, God knows what it'll be by the time we publish this episode, there might be a new revision. But it seemed to be a drive to get people to release through, things through DM's Guild, which I think just, it's, it's like another angle of that revenue stream, which is stuff you were talking about, that what they want is, they don't mind like millions of people producing content, but what they do mind is that they're not getting their share of that money. Mm. Yeah. And I think that's part of the angle. I think DMs Guild, in which has been existing in existence for a while now, and if you want to publish on DMs Guild, you are signing up to a bunch of clauses that aren't particularly sneaky. They're just, you know, they're black and white. You don't have to be a lawyer to sign up to DMs Guild. You are signing away a decent amount of your rights and responsibilities, but you can still publish under the OGL. And that's your two choices, isn't it? You can publish something yeah. for five years OGL, or you can do it within the DM Guild. And guess which one most people pick? They go with the DM Guild. <laughs> I don't want to put numbers on it, but it'd be the vast majority want access to that marketplace. And if you want access to that marketplace, you've got to abide by their rules because it's their market. And mm-hmm. in some ways, you know, not a massive fan of capitalism, but that's just the way the world works, right? And you don't have to do it because there's plenty of people are now pointing out you could have gone off and played a shadow of the demon lord at any point you wanted to or savage worlds or whatever because it's not about the games that you play it's about the marketplaces and they are different the marketplace is not the same as your virtual tabletop or your kitchen table they're not the same and conflating the two is going to get you to an awful lot of problems but you don't have to support that publisher you know because to matt's point i'm going to be honest with you they're not going to care they're not going to mind if you go and play earththorn for a couple of weeks and then realize you can't get a gaming group together. You know, that they're, they're okay with that. It's big enough now that it's going to survive without you. That's where I wanted to sort of circle back to the Games Workshop thing, because in the UK, we know this. We have seen this all before. And we saw it when White Dwarf stopped being a role-playing magazine and started being a miniatures magazine. And we saw it when GW had their management buyout 
and they stopped doing box sets like Chainsaw Warrior and started the juggernaut that is Warhammer. And yes, we did see it again later, as Matt said, when they changed up their IP and blew up the old world and went off into new dimensions. And they're always doing this. We've seen what felt like a great betrayal of the hobby in the past. Mm. We've seen it. But you can't blame them for it. And can you imagine for one minute GW ever doing something like an OGL for like 40K over the last 22 years where you could like do your own chapters and sell it? And can you even imagine? <laughs> I mean, I mean what, what's insane though is 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 part part of the reason why. And I, like again, your caveat at the beginning about us not being lawyers. Yeah. Um, absolutely, just just to remind everyone about that. But as I understand it, you cannot copyright game mechanics. No, you just fundamentally can't protect them legally. So mm-hmm. for me, putting an SRD together really kind of just sort of enabled you to legally define. The bits that you are intending to exclude from the bits that you couldn't protect anyway. Mm-hmm. I think that was the, the the original purpose of it. But then I think very smart people worked out quite quickly that that putting your content out as SRD, enabling people to kind of write more content for it, just creates more content for your game. And and the more content for your game, the more successful it's going to be. You know, we've talked about this before many times, which is. You know, what is the most popular um, section on, on drive-through RPG or on DMGs? It's adventures. It's always adventures because they, they are the greatest example of new content for a game. You know, all right, subclasses is, is an interesting one and magic items and blah, blah, blah. But really, adventures kind of puts all of those into shadow. Absolutely puts into shadow new rule sets and or new settings and and you know things like that no one has any real interest in those whatsoever so having the ogl enabled like certainly third edition to kind of just explode with content you know in the height of three and 3.5 you couldn't walk two paces around a show without bumping into a thousand different and there's a lot of terrible stuff for those oh there was a lot of terrible stuff absolutely but but you like to think that capitalism doesn't have you know many admirable qualities but one of the ones that it should have is is good things should rise to the top and bad things should like decay people vote with the wallets right <laughs> doesn't always happen but it is what it is but uh yeah i i, I think it's it's worth kind of you know sort of recognizing that i don't know if the o, the ogl was that kind of big altruistic give like giveaway that, that perhaps perhaps people are thinking it is if you know what i mean Mm. I think the, the intent was for the people who wrote it, wasn't it? It was to try and yeah. enable people. But Yeah, you've got Ryan Dancy and Peter Adkinson, bloody hippies, essentially. <laughs> and, uh, always have been, always will be. Um, but fast forward 22 years, and it's not Wizards of the Coast. It, and, and Wizards of the Coast started by releasing a product that got them sued by Palladium back in the day for using their IP, so there's an irony. <laughs> anyway, it's not Wizards of the Coast anymore. It's not Peter Adkinson, and it's not, it's not Ray Winninger. Who um, no. who had a very short stay in charge of D anD D, and he's a is a man who's obviously gamer first and everything else second. But now it's it's Hasbro. These are the people who make Monopoly, right? This is what they have to do. They have to do it as a duty to their shareholders, it's not because they necessarily even want it. They have to do it. This is how they live, and it's the same with Workshop. You see it, you see it time and time again. Workshop did the opposite thing back in the nineties and the early noughties when I was there. They just didn't do licenses of anything. That they they didn't want to have 
packets of ham with a space marine on it. They just didn't want to see that. They want to see a beach towel with an Eldar craft world on it. And like them or hate them, they've they kept their cards completely in house all the time ever since. But they're doing a lot more now, aren't they? They are now. Yeah, they're reaching out now. But they wouldn't do an OGL, would they? No. Well, but but I think that's that was the point I was kind of ramblingly getting onto. Is is in many ways, you could the 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 forty k rule set isn't protectable like the mechanics of it. And I think that's partly um, the, the the design protection layers that they put in place. Why the way they write the rules that they do is to make it next to impossible to extract the rules from the fluff and from the <laughs> and, and the wording. And and it's a little bit like trying to take an egg out of a cake after it's baked, which I think is a deliberate ploy by Games Workshop. But technically, if you could extract the core engine. You could just write content for it, and there is very little that that they could do about it. Well, yeah, um, yes. So the, the, I think the thing is certainly for a lot of D and D creators is that like the OGL now has been out for so long, and so many people have built so much on top of it. For example, it would be hard for uh, Hasbro to go to court and successfully claim that they're being impacted by that, and you know, like the. That's not what it was for, and uh, people owe them money because they're losing revenue because of what they're doing. It's just like, well, you've for twenty odd years you've said it's fine, and there's been yeah. no issues, and now you're suddenly saying you've got financial like that's just not reasonable. But the problem is, as, as you've discussed, is that Hasbro have got lawyers on retainer, and if they go and sue someone who's Jeff who lives on his own and works in his shed and little indie adventures, like he's not got the legal capacity to fight that case. Yeah. So that you know, I think that's the worry that a lot of people have is that although rules uh, are sort of like algorithms and uh, you know mathematical formulas and stuff can't be copyrighted, um, there is a chance that the, you get slapped with a lawsuit, and then it's just like the, the cost of even just going to court will be more than you ever make from your product. So you might as well not bother. Which is why I think for some people, the kind of rally to Paizo said we'll take this to court if we have to. And then loads of people like have like flocked behind that banner because if there was a challenge, you'd need someone of that stature just to be able to like get it to the point where you throw it out and fight the battle. But I don't think I don't think Wizards want that battle, to be honest, like given the, the reaction what I've seen is they don't want to have to go to court over stuff. Uh, the, the way the law, the law works in America, like Paizo hasn't got enough money. 1,500 role-playing publishers together haven't got enough money to kind of take that off. <laughs> they just haven't. They will lose. Hasbro have more money, and, and they will win. But the, the, the core point is that I think that's that's the worrying thing, is that although we, we are saying that you can't copyright game mechanics, you, you've then got to go to court to, to defend yourself, potentially. That's that's where the worry comes. That's how they stop it. Like Although they might not be in the right, there is a, a me- judicial mechanism for making them right, almost, or to, for winning the argument. Yeah. I think it's interesting to like you know to think what what are the alternative strategies that that they could have done. So, for example, you know, five E like you know as Baz says, he and I play a fair bit. Gaz, we know you 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 dabble quite heavily in it as well. It's it's a really solid rule set, right? It doesn't need a new edition in any way, shape, or form. They certainly haven't. You know, like they did with three and three point five, where they they quite frankly they drowned their own market with with the number of books that they came out with. They haven't come anywhere close to kind of of saturating their market in that regard. 
maybe some of the OGL content has, but I think a lot of people look at the OGL content and just see it as an amorphous mass, but really judge it by what what is the the official, you know, red and black amber sanded labelled product. There isn't, they haven't got anywhere close to bottoming that out at all. So so if we don't need 5e, why are we getting 6th edition or 1D&D? And is the 1D&D purely to trigger this change? In which case... Why not come out with an OGL that just applies to 1D&D, leave the original one in place for 5e, and then rely and hope and work hard to transition the, as much of the community from 5 to, to 6 as you possibly can. Incentivize, you know, the people, the influencers, those people who are streaming, those people who podcast and talk about it. Reach out to, like, the third-party content creators and do some sort of arrangement with them. Don't even make it like we're going to give you royalty or anything like that. Just say you can have this official badge. All you have to do is sign this paperwork and, and develop for one D&D instead of 5E. And I think you'll see 5E wither on the vine and go the way, you know, damn, we all know people who still play fourth edition and third edition, you know, and, and second edition and first edition. They wear it with a with a badge. They're like ninth edition Warhammer fantasy players. You ain't never going to get any money out of them. You ain't never going to get, they're not customers, they're users is what they are don't care about them what you care about is people who are actively kind of in your hobby so i'm still a little bit sort of trying to work through what what the strategy was why did they pick the fight about revoking it on 5e when it didn't matter they're moving to a new edition anyway just jump everything onto the new if you want to play in, in this new edition then you got to play by our rules i'm conscious we need to let buzz in on this but it's just <laughs> my, my, my quick take would be why do you need a, a new edition of warhammer or warhammer 40k you don't the company just produces one every couple of years, rotating them because they make more money out of it. So that's why. Why did why do we have seven editions of Call of Cthulhu? Because every time we produce a new core book, they made loads of money. Like that, that that's why we have new editions. And I think the the one bit I'll stick in before I let Bazin is that the new edition of D and D sounds like it's basically still going to be five E, but with some tweaks. You know, the, the dancing around the edges. So it's not a significant enough change that it'll be a choice between either or. You could still use both, arguably. But go on, Baz, what do you think? Yeah. I think the thing that none of us have mentioned yet, but all of us are very experienced with, the the big game changer is D&D Beyond, which was a third-party thing. This is the digital uh, interface, by the way, if you, if you don't know, I'm sure you do. Uh, D&D Beyond is the thing where you can store your characters and you can keep campaign logs and it will generate your stuff for you. And you can use it as a purchasing platform too. You can buy digital versions of their rules and so on to manage your stuff and manage your campaigns now, that was third party for a very long time and wizards bought it so now it's theirs and this is where their money's coming in from so those subscribers who are paying extra for extra content like virtual dice that sparkle when you roll them <laughs> well fair play people spend their money on what they want of course they can. They? they can um and there's a free version and so on i know uh, i know as much as anyone does that isn't an accountant at Hasbro, that losing 40,000 D&D Beyond subscribers has made them think very, very hard about how they interact oh, with yeah. the community on this stuff. Yeah. Um, that's that's a chunk of change. However, D&D Beyond was generating so much cash for a business that wasn't even having to do anything particularly, weren't having to release stuff. It was just selling you the same thing re- again. You know, It's like, I'm not going to buy... I'm not going to subscribe to Spotify until I get my money back for all the CDs I bought. <laughs> you know, stop changing the format. It's just not going to happen. But D&D Beyond just makes a butt-ton of cash 
And I, I think I'm right in saying it's still quite difficult to put third party publications onto it. And and the real the, the kind of the real politic of this is that whenever we three have played D and D together, or two of the three of us have played it, if it's not on D and D Beyond, we've found it really difficult to bring it into the game. And actually, we're more likely to play the Ravenloft campaign than we are Odyssey of the Dragon Lords, which we which we've done we've done, haven't we? Yeah, yeah. And you've brought in as much as you can, but it's not it's not trivial to step outside of that garden that D&D is building for itself, which is highly monetized already. Which is interesting because, like, that natural kind of almost barrier creates protection of of, of your content as well, doesn't it? So, so mm. why not just really use that to your advantage? One D&D is, 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 you know, is, I don't know, digital only. You can only buy it on D&D Beyond, you know, and that's the only place you can get it. But it's fully integrated with the VTT that they're developing. It's you know it's got voiceover comms. It is the one stop suits all games place for you to go. Why would you go anywhere else? Why would you use Alchemy? Why would you use Roll Twenty? Why would you use the you know Foundry, etc., cetera, etc.? Cetera? Because you know Roll Twenty and Foundry and 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 those other VTTs they're making significant amounts of money as well. Like you know make no mm. bones about it. They they're you know. The amount of subs that they've got paying them seven bucks a month is soon soon adds up. But if you've if you've got it all in one place and it's easy to use for GMs and it's easy for you to use for players, and one of the things I think we're we're slightly um, uh, not as uh, aware of, but over in the states, it's it's very common for for you to kind of just hook up with some random people and a random GM and just mm-hmm. play a game. I mean, as as British people, that that seems a little bit odd to us, but you know, maybe it's us being a little bit insular, but if, if D&D Beyond had this kind of matchmaking service as well built into it, I just think they've got so many tools that they didn't need to do what they've done. So there must be a reason why they've done what they've done. And I can't, yeah, I can't um... help thinking it's, it's, the, it's the amount of money that's involved. And as you said, uh, I think it was Baz, the exposure that they have to hostile actors and hostile, you know, um, impacts on their brand that they had to clean it up legally. Yeah, there's there's been a there's definitely been a problem with them not uh, addressing issues as they come out, or they got an extremely adverse reaction and then didn't say anything, which has led to. I think one of the things coming out was uh, someone was suggesting that it was going to be like thirty dollars a month for the premium subscription to be able to play D and D Beyond, which was as I've said nonsense. Who knows if that was ever even a thing? Yeah, the trouble the trouble is though, if you if, if you like if you're fighting the fire hose of rhetoric, you you're you're constantly on the defensive and you come across as really weak. And if it wasn't <laughs> yeah. if it was a genuine leak, they probably didn't have a strategy in place as to as has as to how to address the community and some of the community issues. They may maybe they hadn't even got that far to yeah, quite think quite. about that kind of thing and they got caught on the hop. You but, know, but just talking about like VTTs and charging and stuff like that, the, the kind of the other angle I wanted to mention is a lot of people of our age and our cohort, if I may be so bold, uh, like immediately have a kind of um, adverse reaction to any kind of like, I've got to pay for something online or microtransactions or <laughs> thinking. But like freemium content is just the standard nowadays. And if you go to down, I don't know, your local geek retreat or anything like that for a D&D game, you will see lots of 20-somethings pull out their phones with their characters on. Yeah. Because... Every, they all use D and D Beyond, and like, there's certainly a lot of folk that I know of, of of our age or our group that kind of like have this instinctive step back as soon as we have to charge, you know, has to be charged for anything or pay two or three bucks for something or buy an app that 
I think the the younger generation who are, let's not mistake it, the vast majority of D and D players now, just find normal. Yeah. Uh, and you know, why why do you want to buy a book for twenty thirty dollars that's got a four page upgrade for each of all the classes? If you could pay two dollars just to get the cleric one, because you're a plenty cleric and that's all you care about, like that's surely better for you. Like that's a way microtransactions are a way of getting money out of players, but like just enough that they're spending on the thing that they actually want. Yeah. And, and making it more likely they will buy things. So I think there's um there's also an element I'm seeing swim around at the minute of people sort of being reluctant to spend money on digital stuff when they don't seem to grasp that most kids growing up these days get their pocket money and immediately buy V-Bucks and buy a new hat in Fortnite because that's what they spend the money on and, and how they spend the money. Yeah. I, I must admit, you know, coming from uh, from the cohort that does, it pisses me off if I buy a copy of like a, a physical book and then I have to then pay almost full full dollar price to then have it on a VTT. is like... Yes, I can see. You should get some kind of discount voucher or something, shouldn't you? Yeah. Really, you should, but yeah. And pay a third time to have it on Beyond. Exactly. Yes. Which is what it was till very recently. Yeah. Yeah. No, it's insane. But it, that official stamp is a big deal, though, isn't it? People want to play D and D. They want to have it official. They want it easy. And they, you know, the, the other thing that I see, and maybe this doesn't cross the pond, um, is the the antip the the hostility towards the idea of homebrew. Mm. Whereas I'm sure that over here, maybe it's not a British thing, but it, maybe it's a, a generational thing. We didn't even call it homebrew, did we? It was just that's the game. Yeah. Making stuff up is the game. That's the whole point. It's not homebrew. Yeah. But you know, there, but I, I see many reports of people being turned away from gaming tables because they've used something that isn't in a hardback book or officially sanctioned. So you know, there's a there's a big fan base for the people who want that that ampersand and they want that 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 official stamp. Yeah, well, that, that's that's because you. I mean, all three of us, I guarantee, have been hoodwinked by the player when. So is it Player's Handbook plus one or or just any book that I like? Oh, here's this character that mm. I've min-maxed the living heck out of and absolutely destroys the game. So I think there's that kind of baseline assumption that if it's in a red ambersand book, then then it's balanced, right? But I, therein lies yeah. the rub. And I think this 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 is this is the thing. It's like you you kind of just sort of said we would rather play official content. Well, quite frankly. The last thing that I would ever want to do is play an official D and D campaign or adventure because I don't. I just mm-hmm. don't think they're they're good quality. Friend of the show, Justin Alexander, has a brilliant website where he routinely takes published books, big budget published books from Watsi, and just rips them apart in a in a nice way. Like you know, he forensically examines them and identifies all the pitfalls and traps and the places where the adventure is fundamentally broken. And you think this is from the people who who are trying to sell these products to 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 experienced GMs and people who are new to the hobby, and they're putting out products that are fundamentally broken. Well, I would rather play a third party product that I at least know has been play tested a couple of times, at least been run once. <laughs> you know what I mean? Instead of being run a thousand times, you know, this slither and this slither, and then oh yeah, it's probably all it's all fine. So I think there's. I think there's that. I think that, you know, just in terms of like talking about sort of monetizing the brand more, I think there's a huge upside that they could have had in terms of putting out more content, adventures of the lifeblood of it, get the quality bar up. There's the whole of the Forgotten Realms. I mean, we were chatting a little, I think it's before Christmas, about how vast the Forgotten Realms is. And I think it was showing who couldn't, couldn't absolutely believe that Forgotten Realms wasn't just 
the four cities down the sword coast and a, and a, and a bit of Icewind Dale. <laughs> and, and when you, when we showed him the map and everything, he was like, he was blown away by how much stuff there was. Mm. Yeah. I, I slightly rambly kind of like rant there, but I just feel like if their primary motivation is to monetize the brand a bit more, I think they need to look at the product line that they can do that they could do to a really, really good standard and, and sell to their really, you know, engaged audience. So I don't. I, I I go back to the point. If it's purely about monetizing the existing audience, I just don't think. I don't buy it. I don't think this. I think there's something more to it, and I I feel like their hands are tied. And mm-hmm. and therefore, wizards have a degree of my sympathy in that regard. That they they've kind of found themselves in a position where they're now having to rip a bandaid off. I think, and they got the, the, the and it hurts. I mean, it pulls some hairs out at the same time, but I think they've got to do it. Yeah, and I think certainly the creators who work at Wizards or close to Wizards, some of the personal attacks they've suffered are just yeah, we can't have no, that's, that's a boring. Right? Okay, that's absolutely bullshit. Yeah. You know, and because ironically, to your point, Matt, about like their big adventure books, are certainly the first few. <laughs> you never guess who wrote them the third-party publishers who are now so worried about everything, you know. It was Green Ronin and Sasquatch Games, and yeah. they were outsourced because Wizards didn't have the staff. Wizards still don't really have the staff. I think you could probably fit them all in a mini-metro, the people who are like the creatives. Uh, and, you know, no disrespect to the other guys who were HR and doing the graphic design and all of that business, but the people who were sitting there with yellow legal pads and pencils and trying to figure out new ways of making a D20 table, there's just not many of them. A lot of this stuff is outsourced. And a lot of those people that that people got very upset with over the years of Wizards' stewardship of the D&D brand are working at Paizo. Yeah. They're the same people. <laughs> the amount of the bullshit that I've seen about like D&D 5E's art is absolutely abhorrent. What? The stuff by Wayne Reynolds, who does all the Pathfinder stuff that you say is really good. <laughs> it's the same people most of the time. The role-playing industry is just not that big. Yeah. So yeah, it's all a very to conflate, thing, you know, your favourite creator with with an industry is even more stupid. And then to start having a pop at people, you know, there are some people who need to be have a pop at you, Zach Smiths and the rest of it. Absolutely, set them on fire if you see them, please, people. I I think you should. Uh, however, people are working at Wizards, people are working at Paizo. They probably do want to have some nice game of D and D next week. They're not the people that we need to be upset with. If you need to be upset with anybody. Yeah, I think Dennis that well it was it. And don't set fire to anyone, that's a bad idea. <laughs> yes. I was joking, it's satire, people, satire. But for legal reasons. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, Dennis Detwell, I think, said, because um, he used to work, well, he still does work in the industry, but he used to work more closely with the D D because he did a lot of stuff for Magic the Gathering Art and Wise and all that kind of stuff. And he said over the years it's kind of like gone, you've got a bit of a sign wave that sometimes it's a magical place to work and it's all about like games and creative stuff and cool and, and groovy. And then other times it gets more corporate and it seems to cycle around. And it says, unfortunately, like at the minute, it feels like it's got, it's back in the corporate cycle again. Mm. Um, um, let's go back to like another yes. another sort of games workshop analogy that they always said, well, when I did my manager training and probably the same for you, Baz, and, and some others out there all know, but like you, you do the hobby first. Like you don't, when you were doing your training with your staff and stuff, you didn't kind of go like, try and get the credit cards out of the cold dead hands and stuff. It was like, just make it fun, make it a hobby, get the kids excited, they'll get daddy's credit card off in for you. You don't need to worry about that. Yeah. What you do is build the hobby. Uh, and it feels a little bit like um, 
that sort of thing's happened the, you know, the hobby's been built and that's brought loads of people in and then the corporate people think they know best and they try and do something to get even more money when they what, what they should do really is probably sit back a bit and let the creatives carry on making more money by driving the hobby and bringing people in but it would be but it will genuinely be because i've um i worked for a year in um uh i'm not going to name the company but i worked making uh like freemium free free-to-play games that were designed to monetize people and uh, one of the reasons why I only lasted a year in that job is I couldn't take the damage it was doing to my soul and my karma because I'm not a great person as it is, let alone some of the some of the. <laughs> You've not got a lot of room for. Maneuver. I haven't got a lot of room to <laughs> maneuver, and, and and you're genuinely sitting in meetings where they're talking about artificially moving the pinch point because the monetization isn't quite working, and and they're reducing people to stats, and mm-hmm. and. You know, and you are, you will be. I'm almost certain there will have been meetings where they would have looked at, you know, how many customers, what's the revenue, what's the spend per per user in this, you know, in a calendar year, what's the lost the lifetime spend per user, and they would have just looked at that and gone, there is headroom in there, there is absolutely headroom in there, um, and and they're going to have to look to squeeze it, but um, it it kind of sucks because it, it it's a decision that's. Oh no! It's an influence, a strong influence, and it's one that's very hard to kind of um, uh, to deflect in a corporate environment. Um, you know, I'm quite lucky at Steamforge that I can, you know, I can head off purely financial decisions by stamping my feet and and pulling the creative director card and 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 digging my heels in. But even then, it's it's kind of hard. You know, if there's a if there's a purely financial, hey, we're a business and look, we're not making enough money out of these kinds of people when we think we could. Um, so I do I really, really feel for the Wizards um team. I really do. Um I think they're as you say, they're a very small team. I wish their licensing team was a bit bigger. I wish they'd pick up their phone <laughs> a bit more often. I think they might have found that some of these third party creators would have quite happily had a conversation with them and uh Maybe they'll be seeing some royalties, and maybe, maybe these kind of conversations wouldn't have been happening. But quite honestly, I think they probably would off still because I think it's the movies and the TV shows and the video games and all that other stuff that's starting to roll in now. You know, Games Workshop makes more money from video games than anything else right now. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you know, stop and think about that for a second. That you know, we all think about Games Workshop as toy soldiers. It's not. It's a. It's a brand brand company that makes video games oh absolutely i mean people talk about like the space spring outside gwhq but like they ended up getting like a rhino and like tanks and stuff mm-hmm. all those tanks and stuff came for the video games companies mm-hmm. it did promo and they said well don't need it anymore do you want it like the, the selling lead dollies was not enough to buy tanks like that's, that's not what that money came from yeah came from video games another right we used to have a a life-size blood angel in the store in Plaza, which was came from a fan-made um, film. <laughs> they, they sued him, then bought it. <laughs> the, GW. the GW thing, I think we might need to return to, but I don't know if you lads saw it, and I think it really does does speak to the situation we've been covering tonight. I read a couple of fantastic articles from a website I'd never seen before. I just found it almost by accident called Goonhammer. And Goonhammer have done a series of articles with people from Games Workshop's uh, current and historical figures. Um, and they did a two-piece article about, of all things, Gorka Morka. Oh, Jesus. So, I mean, that's pretty niche. Yeah. But is as 
as an analysis of the 10 years of Gaines Workshop between 95 and 2005, it is such a good read about how the company went from being hobbyists to demanding growth, from the studio calling all the shots to the sales division calling all the shots, to the fact that most games have a two-year lead-in up until Gorka Morka, where they got eight weeks because it needed to be ready for Christmas, and what it did to the designers, what it did to Gab Thorpe and Andy Chambers, what it did to the shake-up of what, what power Rick Priestley had within all of that. And it's very similar to Wizards of the Coast. It's a bunch of old hippies, basically, who like a drink and they like to go to do their uh, War of the Roses reenactment stuff and drink real ale and, and drive motorbikes. And then all of a sudden they're making very big money and they're floated on the stock exchange and they have to do 125% growth every year. 125% or 25% growth, I should say. That's ridiculous. And that, that was the setup that they had. And over the course of the millennium, what that did to the business and to Matt's point about the employees at Wizards, what it did to the guys in the red shirts who had families, mortgages, and they weren't hitting their sales targets. And they were all cast aside as people are. And that's not sour grapes. This is now a matter of historical record. Check it out if you get the opportunity. The two very long articles from Goonhammer, very well researched with, you know, with, with good stuff in there that's, that's facts from people who were there at the time. And that's why I see all this stuff at Wizards of Coast and think, haven't we been here before as fans of Warhammer and the RuneQuest articles and Jervis Johnson and Thrud the Barbarian? All of that stuff tells a story that wizards are growing up really, really fast, and now it's about Hasbro. And none of that, none of that prevents you from charging that goblin party with your dwarf fighter next week. And that's the thing I think everybody needs to remember. And it doesn't matter whether you do that with the Savage Worlds rule set, or you're going to go and get the Paizo stuff, which is all free online, and you can get the rules from there, or you just dust off your copy of Second Edition AD&D. You can do that. We're always going to be able to do that. They really cannot take away anyone's hobby from them because it's too late that's already out there license or no license we could be rolling initiative forever yeah i think that's one of the things that 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 rankles me and why i perhaps used some inopportune language at times when talking people's concerns is that like no one's taking your hobby away you still you still got your hobby it's the people who burn old editions of books when a new edition comes out you can still play the old one if you wanted to like you don't like, like, because a new edition comes out, doesn't mean they've broken your game. Just play the old one or do whatever else you want to do, you know. And and I think, ironically, like Wizards of the Coast now or Hasbro have done more for all the other role playing games out there than all the other role playing games have done for themselves for years. You know, like the the number of people that now be exploring other opportunities is uh, is probably vast. Mm-hmm. And I don't think there's any other way you could have got that number of people to look into indie and other RPGs. I think what you'll see is. Um... A couple of things that will happen. I think, I think you'll see a number of five E derivatives, you know, uh, come out. So I suspect that's the direction that Black Flag's going to go in the Cobol Press project. Paizo is obviously going to stick and double down with Pathfinder. Free League, I think, are going to double down with the you know the Year Zero engine. Yeah, they're writing the new GL at the minute. Yeah, Cubicle Seven have already come out and said they're going to focus on the C Seven engine rather than on the on the five E stuff that they they did for Doctor Who. You know, but I think there'll be a couple of companies that will, you know, will come out with some some sort of five E clones. But I think what you'll find is the, these third party creators who who are currently looking in into the abyss and feeling quite concerned. I think there'll be a realization that that much in the way that we're seeing with OSR, 
it, you don't even have to say, oh, this is a black hat game or an OSC or, or anything like that. You just say it's, it's this. You Basically, what you're saying is, is this maths, right? It's OSR maths, right? So you know roughly what the armor class means and what the hit points means and what the damage means. And that's it. So I think what you'll see is, is something along those lines where these people who do write fantastic adventures, well, you don't need to put the full 5e stat block in. You probably save yourself a shitload of time in terms of development and balancing. Just let, just it's it it you know here's a here's the core stats that you actually need. Compatible with your favorite fantasy game, as a lot of things on drive here. Yeah, and you can yeah, and make it. And, and and what I'm really hoping as a as a user is that people will then take the time that they would have spent writing stat blocks and and balancing those and developing those. Take that time and invest it into putting more flavor into their products, putting more usability into their products. Something we were chatting about before the mics went on, which is right the kind of content that sparks the imagination that tells the players and the GMs the fantastic things that they're going to experience and, and how to how to generate these things. I'm way more interested in reading that than I am in a in a in an official or unofficial 5e stat block. Couldn't give a shit about that because I'm an experienced enough GM to make that stuff up at the table anyway. So I don't really need it written down for me. So I think I think that's hopefully the direction you'll start seeing and then you'll start seeing a lot of content coming out which you'll you know i don't know it'll be rpg compatible rather than 5e compatible won't need an agl in it won't need any legalese in it and actually you're then actually genuinely for those third-party creators you are creating value for your own brand you are building your own ip at that stage yeah that is protectable that is yours no one else can take that I don't think you'll see a drop off in sales. I really don't. And if the drop off in sales, and you know, Gaz, we've talked about this because you know you've dabbled in in writing a number of um, modules to to varying degrees of success. When you look at like the terms and conditions on DMG, it really isn't appealing whatsoever. That you're giving away your IP and you're only getting half the revenue from it. You you know you're giving away a fifty percent royalty. It's, that's ridiculous. Mm. But the reason people do it is to access a market. Correct. This is my third prediction. I think you'll see a new market will will emerge, a new marketplace. That that's for me is the real opportunity here for these fifteen hundred kind of third party publishers who signed up to God knows what. You, I think you're better off looking at drive through RPG or or coming up with a with a better marketplace. Well, there's H.io and places like that, aren't they, that sell things. They just don't think people are aware of. They just they hear DMs Guild and thinks that that's all there is. But there's actually a bunch of places you can go to. Yeah, absolutely. So I think you'll see one of those really kind of um, either a new one will come to the market or or one of the existing ones will 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 click onto this and create a new category and make it very easy for people to to get access to this kind of content. So I think you know. I'm quite excited about it, to be honest with you. I, I don't think Wizards are going to, you know, and Hasbro are going to suffer unduly. I think they'll they'll say what they need to say. They'll placate what they need to placate. But I think, I genuinely think their red line is a hard red line, no matter what people say. I, I just don't see the community having the clout to turn them away from the $100 million plus exposure that they currently have. I mean, I mean, the... As, as we frequently said, the number of people shouted on Twitter or as they have podcasts or whatever else it might be is tiny compared to the actual number of people who are playing D&D around their kitchen table with their mates. Exactly. And most of them people can't even be bothered going on Twitter to see what the latest thing is or what. Like, they just it's passed them by. So I'm quite sure the D&D juggernaut will keep 
trundling on anyway, like regardless of all Absolutely. the. Uh, and then, you know, and if you're talking about you know them losing anything more than single digit market share over this, then I think you're smoking some very high quality <laughs> stuff. So uh, they they will lose one to two percent market share over this. I swear, I swear. If, if that, I mean. Yeah. Yeah, so it's, it's probably worth that. I'll try and remember to put it in the show notes, but there is like an LGL 1.2 now. So we're talking about core mechanics, and the core DNA mechanics are now going to be Creative Commons license. That's good. I'll, I'll let you go and look that up for yourselves, listeners, if you want to show that up. But it's like the quintessentially D&D stuff, like Owlbears on Magic Missile, they're going to be in LGL 1.2. So if that thing about mechanics, if you just want to use the D&D mechanics, that's going to be Creative Commons. So yes. you could still do that. To, to answer your earlier question about why would you still do five five E stuff? Well, you, you arguably can. Yep, that's that's a, about an hour of us ranting. Have you got any final thoughts, Buzz? Like Matt's managed to give us three predictions for the future. Have you got any? <laughs> oh, right. So my predictions for the future. I can see what's going to happen with the future from a, a, the perspective of an older generation. My kid, Danny, is sixteen years old. And 23 and a half hours a day is plugged straight into the world of media and memes and geek credentials and all of that stuff. And um, Dan and all of their friends are exactly the same. They love Rick and Morty. They love Stranger Things. They love plushies. They love D&D. They love it so much. Um, They've never heard of the OGL. I checked yesterday. Never heard of it. And they have seen some of the furore about it, but only because it's got like a funny meme with Darth Vader and Gandalf in it. <laughs> People are shouting at each other in large white letters. And they they blink and move on. Yeah. And when 6th edition or 1D&D is the game in town, even the people who've been hurt by this, if they are indeed hurt by this, they will not be able to resist signing up to whatever wizards want to ask them to sign up for, for access to that marketplace, which has the red and black ampersand on it. And all of the people who are currently saying, oh, this is what happens when you get this big gorilla, this 500-pound gorilla in a hobby. It's really, really bad for the hobby. What you should do is make sure that we've got an open game license so that we can all play, oh, hang on, all play the same game. <laughs> it just, you know, it's, don't listen to the bloody fans, basically. If I, were, if I were advising wizards, don't listen to the fans. And if I were advising the fans, I'd say, don't listen to bloody wizards. So, you know, do your thing. We're golden age. Get your game, play it, charge those goblins. Doesn't matter. Yeah, uh, I, I agree with all of that that's been said there. Uh, I think that we've said it before. I know every other D and D designer and any other game designer we've talked to said, like you know, the the rising tide lifts all boats. I think all this is doing is just creating uh, more eyes on D and D and the hobby in general. So like, there's been mainstream media articles about it and things like that. And all that's done is got the D&D brand in the public eye ahead of a movie that's coming out, which will get more people interested, and so on and so forth. Uh, I think there's going to be just like, we're still in that golden age of gaming, and despite the the current shenanigans, there's just going to be more games and more fun times for everybody, I think. Uh, I don't think us as fans, to, to go to Bazzi's earlier point about the, the community as opposed to the industry, we've got nothing to worry about. Everything's still going to be fine. And uh, on that note, dear listeners, thanks for listening. Let us know your thoughts. Uh, or don't. There's plenty of people already offering their thoughts on the internet. So, like, I mean, <laughs> yeah, keep you know, it yourself. <laughs> well, you might be more best advice to do is actually just like run a game, play something. But uh, yeah, that's all for us for this time, and we shall see you next time on what would the smart party do. Good.
goodbye. Adios, amigos.